Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Highway Community Podcast. It is so nice to be back in this space with you again. Uh, I've been on sabbatical uh, for the last two months, and I just can't say enough uh, what a gift it was to have that time, to have two months uh, to rest and spend time with my family. Uh, We got to experience the gift of simplicity, you know, of uncomplicated and unhurried days, where there's just lots of space to fill with what was restful. And and with all that stuff that falls into the... this is really important, and one day I'll get to it category. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I did? I deep cleaned the ceiling fan of our master bedroom. How do you deep clean the ceiling fan? I'm glad you asked. It's a combination wet and dry process because usually there's so much stuff up there that if you took a wet rag to it first, it'd turn into dust cement, showing a little bit of how long it may or may not have been since that fan had been cleaned in what I just said there. Uh, And so you can actually, you actually start with the vacuum and the hose attachment thing and then a dry wipe, and then you can use your wet rag as a final step. That's how you deep clean a ceiling fan, the more you know. Just offering some practical life application here as we get started. I've had the gift of space the last two months, and in that time, got to really connect with God around some of my stuff. You have stuff. I got some stuff. It's always sort of there lurking under the surface and trying to poke its head out. And I'm like, nope, not only do I not want to deal with this right now, I don't want anyone to know it's there. So I'm just going to tuck it away and deal with it later. Like when there's some space, I've had the gift of space the last two months and I got to connect with God around some of my stuff this summer. Have you noticed that we've got this instinct to want to avoid or distance ourselves from our stuff? You know, to hide it, to tuck it away, deal with it later, pretend it doesn't exist. It can't just be me. Can I tell you what I've learned, though? That kind of compartmentalization is like buying something on a credit card. The bill's going to come due eventually. And the longer you wait, the more costly it gets. And so this morning, I want to talk about our sin, our brokenness, our stuff. Because we've all got it, don't we? Look, this is church. Even if you're connecting by podcast, this is church. This should be a safe place, to be honest. Like we all have ways that today, even today, will fall short of the people that we say that we want to be, the people that God calls us to be. Like we've all got stuff. I've got stuff, and God wants to meet us in our stuff, but we've got to let Him. Uh, we've got to be honest about it, we've got to own it. But we are all the time getting messages that say we've got to have it all together. There's such a barrier to entry to vulnerability and transparency right now. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. We've been in a series called Eyes to See, spending time with passages where the gospel writers focus our attention on what Jesus saw and looking at how he responded and what it might look like for us to see in the same way. And today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus sees brokenness, where Jesus sees some stuff, where he sees his people and all of the ways they haven't chosen him. And look, I want to submit this morning that God still sees us the same way. God sees the truth, the whole truth when he looks at us. But as uncomfortable as that might seem, you know, as squirmy as that might make us feel, you know, maybe for some good reasons, uh, I hope we can reset how we relate to our sin and our brokenness, to our stuff this morning. 
that the way Jesus sees us would be how we see ourselves and shape how we see and respond to each other. As we get started this morning, would you pray with me? Yeah, I just thank you for the gift of this space, a time to have an honest conversation about uh, the brokenness and the sin that each of us has in our lives, uh, how hard it is to talk about it, um, just because of this cultural moment that we live in where there's so much pressure on performance and perfection. Jesus, I pray that the truth of your love would shine like a light in the darkness, that it would create the context for the courage to be vulnerable and transparent with you, and that that would ultimately lead to our healing. And we love you and we pray these things in and for your name. Amen. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, go ahead and turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 19. We'll bounce around to a couple other books today, but that's where our home passage will be. Uh, This is the passage that we usually look at for Palm Sunday, but this morning we're going to do like the director's cut edition and focus really on what happens right after the Palm Sunday messages usually stop, when Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about what he sees when he sees the city. Uh, because it's more than just walls and buildings. Uh, and then we're going to take it personal for a little bit, uh, talk about our own lives and how this cultural moment that we're in makes owning our stuff so hard. And, and then we're going to bridge all of those together as we talk about how Jesus responds to what he sees when he sees the city. And, and look, for what it's worth, I'm glad this didn't happen when Jesus was seeing the sea. Talking about what he sees when he sees the sea would just be too much. It's too much. And look, jokes aside, this is a simple message. It's not fancy. It's not new. It's pretty much just the gospel. But sometimes we need to take a break from looking for what's new and just be reminded of what's true. Amen? All right, let's do this thing. Uh, Our passage picks up today with Jesus riding on a donkey in about verse 35, uh, which seems like kind of a weird thing to do. I mean, he wasn't hurt. You know, he didn't need a lift. and He doesn't usually ride donkeys anywhere else in the Gospels, but he makes this choice for a reason because it sends a message. You see, a king entering a city would ride a horse if he was coming in war, or if he was coming in peace, he'd ride, you guessed it, a donkey. I don't know why that was the symbol for coming in peace, but it was. Jesus sending a message to the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. I am your king and I come in peace. And Jesus and his disciples are winding their way down this road that descends out of the mountains and down into the valley where the city of Jerusalem is. And this crowd of people is walking with them and everyone around Jesus is shouting at the top of their lungs, naming off all the miracles that they've seen him do, praising God for what they've seen. And this refrain starts to take hold of the whole crowd. And everyone together starts to shout in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And that first phrase of that refrain comes right out of Psalm 118. Uh, Take a look at this. Psalm 118, starting in verse 22, starts with this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hello. Does that sound familiar? 
that Jesus is about to quote that same passage in the next chapter as the Pharisees are trying to set him up to be arrested. Paul references it all over in his letters to the early churches, but it comes from right here in this passage in Psalm 118, starting in verse 22. The stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. See, everyone around Jesus is shouting, not just blessed is he, but blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the second line from that refrain, peace in heaven and grace glory in the highest. It's like this beautiful response to what the angels say on the night that Jesus was born. Do you remember this? Luke chapter 2 verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And now this crowd is shouting peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's like everything is right with the world in this moment. As Jesus the King comes in peace to his people. The Pharisees try to chip at Jesus and say he needs to tell everyone to shut it because in their eyes, what everyone is saying is blasphemy and untrue. And Jesus responds with just a mic drop response from Habakkuk chapter 2, which we don't have time to get into today. But if you look at the passage where it comes from as a whole, Jesus's response is quite a ripper. And so the Pharisees are silenced. Everyone's shouting praises. You know, there's cloaks on the ground, palm branches in the air. Everything is right with the world. This is where we slow fade to credits and cue the anthemic music. But this is the director's cut. That's not how Palm Sunday actually ends. As Jesus and the crowd are winding their way down out of the mountains, the road makes a sharp turn on the Mount of Olives. Now, look, I, I've never been there, but I've read this on the internet and had it confirmed from people who have been there, so you know it must be true. Uh, the road makes this sharp turn on the Mount of Olives, and, and up until then, you haven't been able to see Jerusalem. But you round this corner, and there's this unobstructed view of the entire city. And in this moment where everyone is cheering and waving palm branches and laying their cloaks on the road and everything seems so right with the world, Jesus turns this corner. And the very next verse from where we usually stop, Luke 19, starting in verse 41, says this, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In the service, I'm going to make a joke that Nick and the band are going to come up and lead us in a closing time of worship right then, because I thought that would be funny. This is the podcast. Can't do that. But just wanted to bring you in on the joke. These are strong words. These are powerful words. Uh, Shocking and a little arresting, but I, I want us to step into this moment and let the truth that it contains start to work on us a little bit. 
And if you're like, uh, I thought this message was going to make me feel better about my brokenness, Jesus' response here does not. Just give it a minute. Jesus is stepping into the role of prophet here. And his tone is more heartbroken messenger than angry and vindictive. When he looks at Jerusalem, Jesus sees it all. He sees the whole truth. He sees more than the walls and the buildings. He sees the hearts and minds of his people. He sees what's on the outside and what's on the inside. He sees the choices that they've made. And he sees the future impact of those choices. And look, this shouldn't surprise us. Uh, the Gospels are filled with moments where Jesus like responds with words to something that the Pharisees are thinking, stuff like that. It's part of God's nature, being omniscient, all-knowing, to know the minds and hearts of his people, like what goes on deep inside them. Like in the entirety of Scripture, we see this. David captures this in Psalm 139, verse 1, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. And we hear it from God, too, as he was talking to Samuel about which of Jesse's sons which of Jesse's sons would be king of Israel? First Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected of him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What I want to offer this morning is that God sees us the same way with the same depth that Jesus saw Jerusalem. And God sees the whole truth, sees what's on the outside and what's on the inside. Look, there have been times in my life when that's been so comforting. And times when I'm trying so hard to get it right, but just seem to keep getting it wrong, God looks at the heart, not what's on the outside. And there have also been times in my life when that has been a Awful. Like when I know I am pretending and there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that I don't want anyone to see. Have you ever so badly wanted to just be seen and known and at the same time not wanted to be fully seen and fully known? We've done a few workshops over the years through Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and he writes in one of the chapters of the book that to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And that's got a very real impact on the way that we relate to our sin and our brokenness and what we do with our stuff. Because way too often, what we learn from our experiences with each other is that we can do something, say something, be something that turns the switch off. That just totally changes the posture towards us. One moment we're in love and, and then we're exes. We're friends and then we're not. We were family. We were family. And it's almost impossible to not let that start to bleed into how we think God relates to us. It's what we know some of us all too well. Uh, look, but that's on us. That's how we treat each other. 
I just want to take a minute and talk about this cultural moment that we're in and how it connects to what we're talking about today. We're in a deeply, deeply polarized time. I mean, you're on the internet, you know, and it seems like now more than any other time that I can remember, there's just this mentality that if we don't see eye to eye on political parties, social issues, public health policy, pandemic response, the police, women's health policy, affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, I mean, the list goes on forever. If we don't see eye to eye on those and you're out. And we're so quick, we're so quick to make public our displeasure with someone else or to let everyone know when someone lets us down or when we think someone gets it wrong. And we've just got to stop and look at what that's creating in the world. Look, because we can pursue justice with peace. We can speak the truth and do it in love. We can uphold standards and accountability with kindness and compassion. But when as followers of Jesus, we contribute to the cancel culture of our day, we are cutting off real wholeness and healing at the knees because we're creating an environment where no one wants to own their stuff. You feel like you can't. You feel like it's not okay. And here's what happens. With that personal and relational lack of security creates in us is this deep concern for how we're being perceived. And what that leads us to do, at least what it leads me to do, is to be constantly watching, observing what's happening around us, the people around us, checking to see if we're in line and that our outward-based appearance is acceptable. It's this pattern of me compare myself to those around me and then manage my image based on what I find. And look, I guess in some cases that can have a positive impact, maybe. But at the end of the day, that's only changing our behavior. It does nothing for what's going on inside. And that comparison thing goes bad fast, no matter what we find. It's a doomed venture. On one hand, if you feel like you don't measure up, that's devastating. And so now you feel like you've got to work harder and harder to build up an image that before you know it starts to get further and further away from who you actually are. And living in that gap is exhausting. After a while, you start to get pretty mad and disillusioned. You wake up one day and you're like, why am I doing this? Most of my friends and family members who are burned out and angry at the church have had this experience. And when we're doing the comparison thing, we, we either don't measure up or, or we do. You know, sometimes it works for us. And, and when it does, it either goes to our heads uh, or, or it leads us to create this greater sense of security for ourselves because, look, when acceptance, affection, and belonging are tied to behavior, performance, and comparison, look, you miss the mark and you're out. And, and so to create a greater sense of security for ourselves, we start to say, well, at least I've got it more together than this person. And at least I'm not a fill-in-the-blank however you want to. And we start to surround ourselves with other people who, air quotes, have it together the same way we do so that we can all create that sense of security for ourselves. And look, this creeps into our churches. It creeps into what we say it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's no wonder right now that the church is largely perceived as hypocritical and judgmental when we're just a bunch of broken people judging other broken people. 
See, when the way that we relate to our brokenness leads us towards comparison and judgmentalness, we know there's something wrong. It's why we distance ourselves from our stuff so much. But at what cost? We can't heal from it if we don't deal with it. Which is why I want us to come back to what Jesus does in this moment. He looks at Jerusalem and he, he sees it all. He sees the whole truth. He sees the city and the hearts and minds within it. He sees the consequences they'll experience that they didn't have to. And he weeps. It breaks his heart. Why? Because this is love. This is watching the people you love make choices that will lead to their own sorrow and suffering. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing Jesus' grief and sorrow in this moment is because he loves. That's another thing that's constant, that's consistent. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but God loved us and sent his son into the world so that our brokenness could be made whole again. There is nothing in all creation, in life or death, in the past, in the future. No power is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I know we get it wrong so often, and we live in a time where so much of our daily reality is living in the pressure cooker of what other people think about what we said or didn't say, what we did or didn't do. And so we've got really no choice but to hide or pretend or ignore, do whatever we can to distance ourselves from our own sin and brokenness. But let me ask you a question. What do you think God's posture is towards you when he sees you in your brokenness? Child of God? daughter or son of the king, who by faith are clothed in Christ's righteousness, his banner over you is love. What do you think God's posture is when he sees all of you, all of your stuff? Here's the rest of that Tim Keller quote. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, God sees it all, and God loves us the same. You know what? If we zoom out from this moment in Jesus' grief and sorrow and as set as the course of events for Jerusalem were, can I remind us of something this morning? Jesus still went to the city as a king coming in peace. And he was arrested, tried, and willingly nailed to a cross for the brokenness of his people. 
it still went. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to show us that there is nothing, no sin, no brokenness, not even death that God can't transform into something beautiful. That God sees it all. And God loves us the same. And God made a way for wholeness and for healing. But we've got to own our stuff. Bring it to him. There's a king who comes in peace to make peace out of the broken pieces in your life. But you've got to let him in. As we close in prayer this morning, I want to invite you to do something. Let's start a conversation with God. Maybe this morning what you need is for God to remind you that he loves you that no matter what other people have said about what you've done or didn't do, God's posture towards you is always love, always will be love. That won't change. And maybe there's some brokenness and sin in your life that you haven't wanted to own. I don't blame you. It's hard to do. Uh, the environment that we live in doesn't really create a safe space to do it. But Jesus is your king who comes in peace. You can trust him with it. Uh, I'm going to close us in prayer now. And I just would invite you to continue that time and conversation with God. Jesus, we need you. What a gift your love is. Would it be the context for the courage for us to be honest? to invite you into all the spaces of our lives we don't want to admit are there, but that you want to meet us in. Because you love us and you want us to be whole. Jesus, we give you this time. Would you speak to your people? We love you and pray these things in and for your name. Amen. Amen.